You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. You ever feel like life is like that? (laughs) Like you came out of your mother's womb kicking and screaming and striving to succeed in life, to be noticed and recognized. It's like a fight out there. It's like you go to work or you go to school and you're fighting just to be noticed, to rise above other people so that somehow your life is successful. Oh, listen, you channel your inner Rocky. You put your gloves on. The eye of the tiger is playing in the background. And you go out there to make a difference. 
Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes understands exactly how you and I feel. He understands exactly what we're looking for in this life. We learned last week that the writer of Ecclesiastes is a philosopher. He asks questions. And this is the reason why some people, and I heard from some people this week, Pastor, I don't like the book of Ecclesiastes. I get it, because it's a book filled with questions, very few answers. Very few answers in the book of Ecclesiastes. Lots of questions. And you know what's not nice about Ecclesiastes? He asks hard questions. The type of questions that you and I, we do our best to avoid. He asks questions that lead us to hard places. Now, why does he take us to hard places? Because he knows someday, inevitably, we all find ourselves in a hard place. Either with age, and we're looking that there's more runway behind us than there is in front of us, or sickness, or failure, or whatever it is, he takes us to those hard places we try to avoid mentally because he knows in the hard places, you'll find hard truth. Now, hard truth is important. You know what hard truth is? It's so different than soft truth. Soft truth is trendy truth. It's everything you see in your Twitter feed, Instagram, Facebook, all the outrage, all of the truth that's out there now. It'll change. It'll change in a different era, at a different time, in a different season. Hard truth is the same in 1970 as it is in 2018, as it was in 56 AD. It is the same truth. You can build a life on hard truth. Now, in order to understand the teaching, Kara read from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and 4, and she read about this life we're going to look at, building a life around work and achievement and success and where that ends and what that looks like. Now, in order to understand Ecclesiastes, remember we learned last week, there's an ancient phrase, there's really two throughout the whole book you keep seeing. One is called chasing after the wind. He keeps saying that. That life is just like chasing after the wind. There's a futility in life, he's saying. But the phrase you need to know to understand the book and unlock it is an ancient phrase that he uses 29 times. He keeps talking about life under the sun. What does he mean by that? Well, under the sun means the natural world. It's the world you and I live in. He's saying this. If you live life and you're looking for meaning and significance and fulfillment under the sun, it won't deliver. But in contrast, in that ancient culture, life under the sun is a natural world. Life above the sun was a supernatural world. That's where God was, eternity, the creator is. And here we learned last week that Jesus, the son of God, the Logos or the word of God, left life above the sun came under the sun so that you and I could connect meaning and significance and life above the sun. So this week and the weeks that follow, we're going to look at the major themes of Ecclesiastes, of which he, he, the philosopher would say, most of us as humans, we try to find our significance in these areas. We try to build lives of significance. Even people who follow God, people of faith, they often end up trying to build their lives in these areas of significance. And the area we're going to look at today is achievement, success, work. Here's how he starts. Because the philosopher, you're going to see, this guy could work. 
This guy built his whole life around success and ambition and working and getting ahead. And here's what he says it amounted to. He says this, I hate it. Whoa. I hated all things that I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. He says, listen, I've achieved great things in life, but I've noticed this at the end of your life. It just goes back into the box. Somebody else spends all of that money. In one of the chapters that says this, it could be a fool, it might be a wise man. And then he says, what difference does it make? It's not me. So some of you are thinking, that's right. I better spend it all right now. <laughs> he sees a futility to this. All of his work, all of his success. And earlier in the chapter, in chapter 2, and Kara didn't read this part because it was earlier in the chapter, he kind of lays out what he did. And this guy, this guy made it. This guy was talented. This guy was successful. He says this, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water, groves, and flourishing trees. I amassed silver and gold myself. I want you to know, the philosopher was an incredibly talented and driven person. And that's a really good combination if you want success under the sun. He was driven, he was ambitious, he was talented, and he got what we all want in some degree or another, a successful life. And then he reflects back on it and he says, and I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun. Why? Because if we read Ecclesiastes 2 and 4, the success life didn't deliver what it promised him. We all want success. We all want to achieve great things. We all want to accomplish great things because at heart level, there are two things we believe that work, whether it's you're going to school and you're excelling at school or you're the workforce, we believe it'll give us two things. We hope and we believe that work will bring us satisfaction. And the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes was plagiarized by Mick Jagger when he says, I, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> that work couldn't actually deliver it. In fact, he said it this way. He said it this way. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days are work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. He says this, okay, you can get some satisfaction at work, but you'll never get the type of deep satisfaction that you crave for. In fact, work will give you pain. Now, this is meaning pain on a good day. This means when work is going great, there's still pain associated with it. It's the wear and tear of the monotony of work. Have you ever noticed that? Even if you like your job, when you start doing the same thing over and over. Listen, I've noticed something in my work field. Sunday comes every week. You start doing the same thing over and over. If you're not careful, there's a pain that comes with it. Also, there's just a pain. You get worn down over time. You get worn out over time. That's why we have something called retirement. I'm laughing. I know too many people who are retired in this congregation. It just meant more work that they didn't get paid for. <laughs> Here's the interesting thing. I, I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking about the home I grew up in. 
And um, my parents worked really hard. But I kind of took it for granted as a kid. I just thought that's what they do. But I felt when I was reading this, I was thinking, man, I should really thank them. They toiled under the sun, and there was a cost associated to that for us. I'm just saying, if you're living with your parents on the way home, say, hey, thanks for toiling under the sun. You can use that too. Thanks for toiling under the sun for the pain and the wearing of it to provide for us. If you're not living with your parents, but your parents are still alive, I was going to say, you know, text them, but maybe they're not in the text world. So call them. Go figure. They might want to hear your voice. I don't know. I'm going to move that and leave that along. There's not just pain. There's also grief. Now, pain is when things are going well. Grief is when things are not going well. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying this is, listen, if you work, if you work and if you're striving and if you're trying to achieve something in life, listen, there is going to be some disappointments. It's normal, he's saying. Listen, you are evaluated at work like you're not in any other part of your life. What have you done for us lately? And there's an evaluation process, and you can't help but experience some failures and setbacks in work and moving ahead in life, right? Hey, friends, the markets don't always go up, do they? So, well, based on that response, most of you should not be investing. Because yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't always go up. You know what happens? You don't always get the promotion at work, even if you deserve it. You don't always get to close the deal. You don't always get the repeat interview, the second interview. You don't get called back. You don't get called from the audition. You don't get, your application doesn't get selected. You can work hard filling your resume with work experiences and then educational accolades and everything and not even get a call back. And you know what that is over time? That's grief. It's rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. So the writer in Ecclesiastes is saying, listen, if you're looking to work to find meaning and, and for achievement and success to make you feel important and, and give you some measure of satisfaction, I'll tell you what it'll bring you. Pain on a good day, grief on a bad day. And not just that, he ends it by saying, and at night, their minds don't rest. In other words, it's kind of like, have you ever noticed that work sometimes follows you home? I've gone out for coffee with Shelly. This is years ago. I went out for coffee, and we're having coffee, and she can tell I'm still at work. And she goes, oh, I remember her smiling at me. She said, you know what? I thought we were going out for coffee. I didn't know everyone from work was coming with us. <laughs> because you know what happens? He says there's worry associated to work. We worry. What's going to happen tomorrow? Is it going to be pain on a good day, or is it going to be grief? What's it going to be? He's saying this. Listen, in this life, it's unavoidable for everyone. It rains on the just and the unjust. There's going to be measures of pain and some worry at seasons and some grief that happens at work. But if you make work your all in all, it will break you. It will brutalize you. It will tear you from the inside out. Satisfaction is what we need psychologically, and work cannot deliver it. But that's probably not the big one. We look to work for some measure of satisfaction, but we look to work for recognition. And this is maybe where work or success fails us most. I was thinking about this this week because I was thinking, 
I've gone through great pockets of my life working way too hard and levels that I know are wrong. They were wrong. I was even a follower of Jesus at the time, and I worked in ways that were, I was proud of it too. No day off, just work, work, work. And you know, it'd be nice to say that I was doing it for good, and there was a measure of that. I was doing it for good. Sure, that was part of it. I was doing it for God. Sure, that was part of it. But you know what was driving a lot of it? I was looking to be noticed. I thought about that a lot. Why were you so desperate to be noticed? And I thought, it's probably because I was a middle kid. How many middle kids here, right? Look at me, look at me. Why? You're not the oldest and youngest. You're just what happened in between. I thought, it can't be just that. And I thought, maybe it's because, you know, I was born and I had, like, when I was a kid, I had freckles everywhere and red, red hair. It's true. And you're thinking, what's the big deal with that? Well, when you're raised in an area where everyone was, everyone at my school was white, every one of them, Caucasian, kids are always looking for whoever looks a little different. And I was the only redhead in the school. And with that came a measure of, yeah, bullying, whatever it looked like. And so, you know, something got inside of me. I was a little bit of a fighter. I'm going to like, I'm going to show them I'm going to succeed despite that, and it began to fuel my performance. And I noticed this, the harder I worked, the more people recognized. So I worked in ways that were unhealthy. Listen, the philosopher says, been there, done it, bought the t-shirt, doesn't work. He says this, actually. He says, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Do you remember when Kara read this fantastic line? There was a man, say it with me, all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. And I like how he ends it. A miserable business. Here's what he's saying. Here's this man. He's so successful. He's so successful, and he's craving recognition, and he gets recognition but not the kind of recognition he needs. Everybody knows he's an important man. People would be pointing out to him, hey, that's the guy who built that place over there. Hey, that's the guy who's this guy and he's got this designation or he did these great things. And he does all these things. Everybody recognizes him. He's successful. But the problem is it's not the type of recognition he needs. It's recognition from afar. Where's his family? They're probably gone out of neglect. I know how this works, though. (laughs) There's a season where he probably tried to convince himself, I'm working and working so hard for them. Hmm. There was a big void in his life, too. And he was filling it with more and more work until the family was collateral damage. Where are his friends? Do you know where his friends are? No friends. Why? Probably one of three reasons. One, he probably didn't spend the time maintaining friendships. Have you ever noticed friendships take time? You need to make some investments. If you're always making withdrawals, your friends no longer think we're actually friends. You're more of a project now than a friend. It might be because of that. It might not be because of that. It might be because I've noticed in some successful people, they get so driven around one thing, they become one-dimensional 
and therefore not that interesting. You know, all they talk about is work. All they talk about is what they get recognition from. And after a while, people start going like, well, you got anything else? You know, we usually say to friends we're really close to, you need to get a life. And what we're saying is, you need to get some more interest than just that one area that you're getting all this recognition from because it's, it's driving you places. Or maybe, maybe he has no friends because he had to trample on a few to get up to the top. Here's the lie of work. You climb that ladder to find out that you're all alone at the top of that ladder. We have an expression for it. It's lonely at the top. See, work will promise you satisfaction, and then it brutalizes you with pain, grief, and worry. Work will promise you recognition, and it leaves you with isolation. So I know what you're thinking right now. Great pastor, I'm quitting. <laughs> I'm leaving here. I'm tendering my resignation. I'm done. I'm quitting school because, you know, I don't want to get caught in that trap. Listen, the Bible speaks so positively about work. It's a wonderful gift. God made us actually to work. Before sin ever entered this world, Adam was working in the garden. When we get in eternity, and we'll do a series on this in the new year on heaven and what it's really going to be like because we have all kinds of weird things that makes heaven sound boring and it's nothing like that in the Bible. But it says we'll be working there, but it won't be like it is here. We'll be working there without the pain, the grief, and the worry. But see, there's so much creative energy and innovation and uh, things to accomplish and that sense that we get of wonder at work when it's going really well. Hey, remember, the person I chose to orientate my life around, Jesus, he worked a blue-collar job for years. He rolled, his hands were dirty, calloused, filled with blisters, and he did hard work for years. Work is a wonderful thing. In fact, the Bible says that if we're able to work and we're not working, something's wrong. We, 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 and now, that's not saying that we can have moments of unemployment and all of that. We're going to pray for you at the end of our gathering. But work is a very good thing to be a part of. But why do we look for work? Why do we put so much weight on work and success and achievement to make us feel important? Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 4 tells us why. You know what it is? It's identity. We're trying to find out who we are. He says it this way. He says, I saw that all toil, all work, and all achievement, think of all your achievements, spring from one person's, can you say it with me? Envy of another. In other words, we want to be noticed from out of the crowd. We want to be recognized a little bit more than those around us. Now, you might say, Pastor, that's not me. Then why do you post on social media like you do? <laughs> it's all of us. It's all of us. What he's saying is, and he drives throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he drives out. He says there's something fueling us in life. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that we know something's wrong with us. Every one of us knows deep down inside there's something wrong with us. I mean, you blame your parents. You can blame others around you. But we actually know that we're not just... Now, I, I, I know how this line of thought goes because I've done it. I've played this game many times. No, I'm working to help people. That is probably part of it. But you are a mixed 
bag of motives. You're probably working to help people, but you're also working to be noticed. Oh, I make products that really help people. And he would say, you make products that help people, but you are actually manufacturing not just products, you're trying to manufacture a self. You're trying to prove that you're somebody. That's why if you make art in this room, we are our art. We are our money. We are our success. We are what we drive. We are where we live. We are, uh, we are what we achieve in life. And we become known for our successes and failures, don't we? I mean, listen, when you meet someone for the first time, you always ask them, hey, what's your name? Followed by, what do you do? In other words, who are you? Are you important? Should I get you in on LinkedIn? Because if you're not important, I don't need to remember your name. See, we do it all the time. It becomes our identity. We become known for what we've been successful at. If you're an amazing athlete, people start to know you as that. And then they start to recognize it. And what happens? That becomes who you are. That's not who you are. If you become, if you're really gifted educationally and you scale that mountain and you get your PhD or whatever it might be, you become known as a doctor. And of course, that's a, a designation of respect, but that's not who you are. It becomes, though, if we're not careful, who we are because we're all trying to manufacture a self, Ecclesiastes would say. That's why some people overwork and that's why some people underwork. Some people overwork because they're redlining it why? Because that's where you get that recognition. That's where you get a sense of satisfaction that you are somehow rising above the crowd. Some people underwork. Do you know those people do enough just to get by? Might be you. I, I don't know. <laughs> Got quiet in this place. <laughs> you, why do people underwork? Because they went to work and they looked for success. And they look, for, they look for satisfaction and recognition, and work came up short. So now they go to work just to get a paycheck. There's no joy in work. Joy, work has disappointed them. See, what Ecclesiastes is driving at is if you try to find your identity in what you do, in your work, in your success, in your achievements, what will happen in the end, it will drive you into the ground. Now, friends, there's obvious reasons why we look to work and success and achievements to do this. But there's a deeper reason. And the philosopher takes us there in Ecclesiastes 4. He builds this image, this picture of what every human being is like when it comes to work. He says this, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. He's saying this, you have two hands. Hold them out in front of you and just look at your hands. This is the work you do, the industry you're in. They might be calloused, they might not be callous. They might be tired fingers that need a, a, you know, a massage because you type all the time. I have no idea, but you work and he says you have two hands. Fools fold them and it, it leads to ruin. Fools, and often they become foolish in this because they've either overworked and work didn't deliver and now they're just doing whatever they need to do to get by or work promised things 
And work has felt like one rejection after another. And friends, if you were there, it's easy if things have gone well in life. Not that you haven't worked hard, not that you haven't had some breaks in life, whatever it might be, but it's easy to make somebody who maybe has experienced rejection after rejection after rejection feel bad. But I'd say to you, if that's you, friends, I'm going to invite you to unfold your hands in a minute. Because he gives us an alternative. The fool folds his hand, folds his hand. I'd say this, it's foolish to have work filling both hands. He says this, the wise person has one hand full of work, full of work and industry, and one hand full of tranquility. It's interesting, the Hebrew word he uses for tranquility is quietness. One hand filled with noise and work and and moving ahead and, and striving, and one hand filled with tranquility, a deep, deep rest. Now, why do you need that? Why do I need that? Because he's on to something. He knows there is a restlessness in every human being. There is something inside of all of us that is striving. We, we work hard, striving to be noticed, and we need a supernatural, divine quiet, a deep rest. What does this deep rest look like? It's mentioned in the book of Genesis. It's mentioned in Psalm 95. But for our interest, and maybe more to the point, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says this about that type of rest. It says, there remains then a rest for the people of God. For people who are trying to connect above the sun, there is a rest for anyone who enters God's rest, also rests from their works. He's talking about this deep and profound rest that exists. Now, friends, he's not talking about your grandmother's religion. He's not, he's not talking about uh, uh, whether you believe in God or not. You might not believe in God at all. You might not believe in the Bible. But the Bible is saying this. In every human being, every human being is striving to work out their own salvation. And the Bible says, regardless of your beliefs, it's because we all know there's something wrong with us. You thought you were alone. You thought only you had something wrong with you. We all know. That's why we love to keep our pace going and we don't like to pause. That's why books like Ecclesiastes bothers us because it forces us to take a look inside and realize, whoa, there's something wrong with me. We kind of all know we're not good enough. That's why we blame. Blame is at the heart of that. We blame our parents. We, we, we blame our upbringing. If I'd only been pushed more, if I had had more opportunities in life, I might have accomplished more. We blame sometimes, I've heard this, friends, we sometimes blame the ethnic group that we come from. The culture that maybe kept us from getting ahead in North America or something like that. Sometimes we'll blame the neighborhood we're a part of or where we grew up or we'll blame even our church. And the Bible, I love how the Bible doesn't dismiss our pain. It acknowledges it. And it would say this, these might be contributing factors, but you're not looking deep enough. You're not looking deep enough. We all feel something's wrong with us. We all know we're not good enough. And we're all working and performing and posing to be noticed, to achieve, to succeed and find meaning because we know that. We know we're broken. See, it's only with life above the sun not life under the sun, finding our meaning in Christ, 
not in our work and significance, that we find healing from that. And then in our work, all of a sudden, we all need rest from our work in our work. That's what we can find. Can you read that with me? We all need rest from our work in our work. Now, what do, we think we need rest from work, right? We just need time off from work, and that's how everything will get better. But again, just like my coffee with Shelly, have you ever taken work on vacation with you? Better yet, is the person sitting next to you, have they taken work on vacation with you? Here's the thing. You can take a break from your everyday rhythm, and it doesn't give you a break from work but you can find a divine rest in the middle of your work, a divine tranquility in the middle of your work. We all need this rest. We need this rest, and this rest comes from God. It says in Ecclesiastic 2 that God gives rest, and it says this, to those he's pleased with. Now, I don't know, does that make you feel good? That doesn't make me feel good because I'm this overachieving monster. And I notice this, that if I do this, 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 and I work harder, people like that. And so that must be how God means then. Okay, I just need to work harder at my relationship with God. And this is how religion starts to take off. Religion is all about checklists. If I do enough of this, God's going to bless me when the chips are down. I've sinned, I've done something, and I know it's wrong, and my conscience is guilty. But, you know, I'm going to get my life right for a bit. I'll attend church a little bit. I'll do this, this, this. That should be enough to cover that. And we do math all the time. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. That's not at all the way it's worked. That's not how you find this rest, this divine rest that every human being needs. Instead, the Hebrew word that he says for pleases is pleasure. It could be this, better written this way. His rest is given to those he takes pleasure in. Who does he take pleasure in? The believer is the one that God looks on. And he takes pleasure. He looks at you and he sees beauty. He looks at you and he sees a diamond. He looks at you and he sees a work of art. Friend, I wish for one moment every human could see how God sees them. And this angry, vindictive version of God would die in a second. And we would see a God that cherishes you, loves you, and delights in you. There's a prophet in the Old Testament, and he says it far better than I do. In Zephaniah chapter 3, he says these words, Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. That's why in worship... We're kind of all in and we're celebrating and we're enjoying it because we're glad with all our hearts. Why? The Lord has taken away all your judgments. He's taken away all your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. No longer. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And then he drops the mic in this next part. He says, he will rejoice over you, 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 with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The imagery here, friends, is that God looks on those who place their faith in him and he takes pleasure in you. He is delighted in you. You beat yourself up. 
You think you're this and that and the other thing and Jesus is looking down on you. God looks down on you and thinks, I don't know who you're talking about. I see beauty there. I see, I see a diamond there. I delight in this person. I rejoice over them. I sing over them. If you knew that, your heart would be quieted, even in the midst of great work. How do you get that rest? How do you, get, how do you tap into that? How do you actually get that place where you say, I know that God delights in me. I know that he sees me. He takes pleasure in me. How do you get to that place? Well, I'll tell you this. You can't earn it. You know, you can work like a dog. You can work like a dog at religion. I've seen it. And you know what I've noticed with people who work like a dog at religion? It kind of makes you even more nasty. It can do that to you. It really does. It changes the narrative of your relationship with God. It's not a love relationship. It's a performance-based relationship. Whoa. You're, you're in the wrong race. You're in the wrong race. In fact, it's Jesus, the Logos, who gives us the way. Here's what he says. These are his words. He says, are you tired? If you're not, you will be. If you're tired of the sermon, it's almost done. <laughs> you worn out? You burned out on religion? Say it out loud with me. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. This is beautiful. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus says, he doesn't say, he says, come to me. He doesn't say, come to these things. He doesn't say, do these things. He says, come to me. Come to a person. Again, friends, this is not your grandmother's religion. Jesus is not a religion. I'll tell you who Jesus is. He's everything you've ever wanted, but you can never earn. He is that. He's outside your success ratio. He's outside your work narrative. He's so much larger than that. I'd like to invite those that are going to be serving communion just to go and prepare yourselves if you, if you would and slip out of the room. I want to take you to this moment with Jesus. The night before he was murdered, he's in the garden with his followers. And if you know the account, he's troubled. It says in the account that he's actually in agony. Why? He had lost his rest. Why? Because he knew what he was facing. He knew that next day he would let them, that's the key word, let them take him. He would let them crucify him. He would let them kill him so that his rest could become our rest. So that his wholeness could become our wholeness so that our brokenness could be put on him and taken off of us. Friends, I, I was thinking about this whole thing, and I was thinking about my life. I can't, you can't help but read the scripture and think about you. 
I was thinking about what he says in Zephaniah 3, that he delights in me and he sings over me. And it's so hard because I'm such a, a, a checklist guy in many ways that, you know, I, all I could think of is I remember when we had children. And the older I get, it's harder to remember those infant stages. But I remember one day in particular, vividly, I brought my firstborn home. And he was so colicky. And some of you parents know what that's like. Uh, for weeks, 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 just so much pain. He cried a lot of the time. And there's nothing I could do it. And I'm a fix-it guy. I want to fix this, and I can't. I prayed for him. I remember one day in particular in our apartment, Shelley needed a break. And, and I have him, and I'm walking around the apartment, and I'm rocking him. And I can't settle him. And I just begin to sing over him. Just begin to sing worship songs. It was more for my heart than maybe even his. Because parents, you know what it means. It's so disturbing to see your child in distress, whatever their age is. It's troubling to you. And I'm looking down at this kid, and words begin to roll out of my mouth. And I'm not ashamed that. Like, I begin to cry. Because I felt like I can't fix them. I got nothing here, God. And I remember saying this to him. I remember saying, kid... I'd die for you. And I said these words. I said, if I could take this pain, I would take it on myself so you could rest. And I'm just an evil earthly father. God saw us in our pain. God saw us looking for significance. God saw all the pain, grief, and worry. And he said, enough. And unlike me, he had the power to do something about it. And he sent his one and only son, Jesus, so that when we are finding ourselves at that place of turmoil and grief, we could enter into his rest. You know, friends, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus above the sun, all of a sudden it changes the way you work below the sun. You know what you're free to do? You can work hard. There's nothing wrong with it. I think there's something good about it. You can achieve things. You can succeed in life without it being your ultimate anymore. You can own a business now without the business owning you. You know the difference, entrepreneurs? Without the business owning you. All of a sudden, you're free. You're fearless to innovate and create and do incredible things because you know no matter what happens at work, your everything, your reason for being can never be taken away from you. Ever be taken away from you. Jobs come and go. Not your significance. Not your meaning. Not Jesus. Instead of striving for psychological, social, and spiritual significance at work, what if you could find it in Jesus? All of a, all of a sudden, friends, then you're free to enjoy work, to find joy in it. Then you're free to help other people for the joy of helping other people, not just to be recognized. You know why you don't need to be recognized now? Because you know Jesus knows. You know he sees. You know he keeps great books. And you know he delights in you. What's your performance review look like with God? If you're a follower of Jesus, he sees you through the lens 
of Jesus' record, not yours. And last time I looked at Jesus' performance, it was perfect. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.